we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world from people who think. Welcome to another edition of Stock Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn. With me in the studio are my co-hosts in the studio tonight are Neil Bradley and Pierre Lescaudron. Hello. Bonjour. Uh, as you can probably imagine this week, unless you've read the uh, blurb about the show, this week we're going to be talking about Ukraine uh, again in the sense that, or in the context of which, um, the context in which the situation has expanded and grown since since last week, uh, to, to become, well, maybe a third world war type scenario, according to some people, uh, because what we're looking at is a potential ultimate conflict, <laughs> a la Rocky, you know, East versus West, uh, a new Cold War, nukes on the horizon, dark and cover, get onto your desk. Between the US of A, which is most of the world, yeah. and... The Great Bear. The Great Bear of Russia. Those darn commies, they never went away. You see, that's... I that's, knew it. I knew they were hiding some. They pretended. Yeah, it was all a big scam. They were just pretending to have uh, kind of collapsed in the Soviet Union, but behind it, they were plotting and planning and for scheming. this day. So is that what's really going on? I don't know. Uh, well, I have an idea. We have an idea, but um, I'm going to get into that. But we're also going to be talking a little bit about what's been going on elsewhere in the world because these kind of things are always related to other things that are happening in the world and especially not just in terms of politics because um, politics very often is and always has been uh, a cover for, in a certain sense, a distraction for uh, the people to keep the people um, you know, usually afraid or distracted in some way or other and also enthralled to their, to their authorities. So essentially in that way, ensuring that the authorities' uh, positions of power are uh, safeguarded because obviously to be in a position of authority and command the people, you have to have the people's allegiance and very often the way you get the people's allegiance is through fear or the sense of uh, uh, the people needing you and instilling the sense into the people that they need you, their leaders, uh, to protect them as V for Vendetta, uh, the movie V for Vendetta explained. Okay, so are we having technical problems? No, uh, we're just getting a report that nobody's hearing anything. I'm not sure, oh. I'm not sure or not, but um, that's not good for me. going. Uh, anyway, um, maybe we should begin with a kind of recap or rundown of what's happening, the latest in Ukraine. So. <clears throat> Uh, where we left the last time, I think. What, where were we at? Uh, yes, that's it. The Olympics had just ended. Mm-hmm. The president, remember the, resi- uh, the president left, yes. and nobody knew where he was, mm-hmm. and that was the the last point we developed this week. He since popped up, surprise, yeah. in Russia. In Russia. <laughs> were you surprised? I was. No. 
um, where he gave a press conference and gave his side of the story. And, and he said that actually it was a coup. And uh, coup. A coup. On the balapé. Chicken coup. <laughs> it, was a, it was a coup that was organized, orchestrated by Western powers. Yeah. And uh, he, he doesn't has, he, call for violence, but he wants to, uh, for his right and his uh, legitimacy to be reestablished. And his narrative is a hell of a lot more accurate. Yeah. Than what in higher Western media has been saying. So he came up in Russia and said, I'm here. I, st- I said, he said, I still consider myself the president. That's kind of. I don't see any way back from at this point. I mean, absent a major crisis that he might eventually come back to Ukraine on top of, but... And he didn't say he left for political reasons. He said, I mean, depending on what you call political, he said he left because actually his life and the life of his family members was endangered. Mm-hmm. That's the level of pressure yeah. he was facing. In his own country, he was president of Ukraine. He was facing this kind of... Uh, condition. Yeah. In addition, many members of the security forces that were involved in the initial conflicts on the street in Kiev, they are also turning up. Many of them are family there or they're closely connected anyway, but they're turning up in Russia and being given free passports. They're essentially being they were the first, if you like, political refugees. Yeah, 600,000 refugees. We're talking about big numbers because Ukraine is... Well, yeah, we're we're talking about about a few... Specifically, here a few of the actual security ah, forces involved. They left under the same, the same. They gave the same reason that Yanukovych had given threats to their personal safety and their families. They felt they couldn't live in Kiev anymore. Of course. Yeah. Um, now, that's another issue. The refugees. There's a lot of figures out there. As, as far as 800,000, I don't think so. The, the most conservative Russian estimate is that. Based at least based on some data they can provide, is that 140 something thousand yeah. people have applied for asylum Passports. over the past four or two weeks since this crisis exploded. Yeah. And uh, why? Are they... However, they have a, the Russians. <clears throat> even even short of you know uh, NATO airstrikes or whatever is coming down the pipe, there will be a lot more people. Yeah, exactly. Pouring over the borders. Because there were several reasons for those people to escape from Ukraine and join Russia. There was the ongoing violence in this uh, kind of civil war. And uh, now, I mean, if you are pro-Russian, if you speak Russian, it's not a good time to live in Ukraine when you see the composition of the new uh, ministry cabinet. Yeah, let's not forget their very first action was to outlaw... Well, I mean, to remove Russian as a second language in a country yeah. where some 45% or so of the country speaks the language yeah. as a mother tongue, that right there declared it. They just made it clear from the beginning that they had no intention whatsoever of having any kind of reconciliation or reconciliatory approach to solving the crisis. Um, let's, let's have a look at some more. I mean, things are happening so fast. This is just from today. So Russian troops have surrounded at least two military bases in Crimea. Crimea. Uh, apparently they're trying to get, they're surrounding others as well. Negotiations are going on with the Ukrainian troops inside. 
I think from the Russian point of view, with a view to getting them to surrender the weapons and or leave the base and return to mainland Ukraine. Uh, so there are some communiques stating that uh, one ship, one Ukrainian ship, joined the Russian fleet and uh, some Ukrainian troops located in Crimea joined the, the Russian forces. What do you think about this? Yes. Um, I first heard this, I think, in the Guardian, an English newspaper, and of course it was pooed as Russian propaganda. But actually, it turns out to be true. Listen to this. The Ukrainian Prime Minister, Arseniy Yatsenik, the uh, economist guy who Victoria Newland said, yeah, yeah, we'll have him. And it worked. Uh, he said Russia has declared war on Ukraine. This isn't just a threat from Moscow. He warned, we are on the brink of disaster. He allegedly mobilized Ukraine's reserve troops. As you'll see, it's very unlikely he's mobilizing anyone because yesterday he appointed at a, at a press conference the new commander of the Ukrainian Navy because, of course, they're, they're kicking out the old guard because they're not sure about where the loyalties lie. So the new commander of the Ukrainian Navy, Denis Berezovsky, today he defected. <laughs> He, def he, was, he accepted the post yesterday, and I think that must be the ship you're talking about that has essentially mutinied. Yeah, a destroyer, a destroyer that was in mission, and they did come back to the port and <laughs> joined the, the Russian fleet. Yeah, it does give some, some, some beef to what the Russians are saying, that, you know, look, um, yeah. both ordinary people and the military across Ukraine, not just in Crimea across Ukraine, especially the southern and eastern parts, aren't, are, they, would stay, they're loyal, they're, they would sooner live inside a country called Russia yeah. than accept what's taking place. And you mentioned south and east, because uh, in Ukraine there's not a perfectly homogeneous population, and the south and the east of Ukraine, which includes Crimea, has very strong historical, cultural and linguistic and to some extent geographic ties with Russia for centuries and centuries. Um, yeah, in Ukraine, there is a, a very old historical nation of Ukraine, but I mean, it, it has changed so many times. Um, but the modern boundaries, oh, they go back to about the 1950s. Um, but, you know, if they're going to start getting into, oh, we want to return to when a country was like, they can pick any time period, whichever side. So yeah. that's silly. But where the Russians have the most solid claim to the place, or at least claim to cultural connections with the place, is actually much more recent. Um, I'm going to get to it in a minute. It's to do with what happened inside Russia in the early 90s, and then subsequently in Ukraine. So just before, here's some more recap on what's going on. Um... John Kerry, warmonger, uh, he warned that Russia would be expelled from the G8 and face economic sanctions. I mean, economic sanctions are a declaration of war. So if they go that road, well, technically they're at war. Unless Putin halts his incredible act of aggression. Incredible. Yes, indeed. He also mentioned visa bans, asset freezes, trade isolation, and so on and so on. The NATO Secretary General accused Russia of threatening peace in Europe by its actions and violating the UN Charter. Who, who does that? Violating the UN Charter? Violating the UN Charter? Never happened. Never happened on the, on the Iran. Disgusting. 
that's terrible. I mean, only terrorists do that. It's just as well that the U.S. hadn't violated when they illegally invaded Iraq in 2003. You know, because it would be extremely hypocritical if Kerry had actually mentioned that. You know, apart, no, not to mention, you know, bombing Libya and aiding terrorists, Al Qaeda imposed terrorists in Syria and. Generally speaking, uh, breaking every international law that has ever been written in the past 100 years. But actually, Kerry, yeah, what's amazing about Kerry is Mr. Deathhead himself is that... Uh, skull and bones. Yeah, <laughs> he looks like a skull. Skull, um, skull and bones. It's, it's an interesting example of someone's inner nature being appropriately or accurately reflected in the shape of their head. Um, like Sarah, Sarah Pauline in a elongated skull. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, Kerry talked. Uh, Kerry, I don't know. He doesn't have a hypocrisy sensor, sensor uh, within him. You know, way most people would tend to kind of, um, you know, they might be a bit hypocritical on again, but they would rarely ever blatantly in front of a large number of people stand up and point the finger at someone else for doing something that they themselves and every, that everybody knows they themselves were doing, you know? Um, I don't know if there's a good analogy to come up with, but just imagine some blatantly and massively hypocritical statement from someone in front of everybody. And that's pretty much what uh, Kerry said today on uh, was it Meet the Press or Meet the Nation or screw the nation, I don't know, whatever the name of that show in the U.S. is, where they talk to politicians about things on Sundays. Anyway, this is Kerry. This really morning that Russia's actions amount to a declaration of war, and he says we are on the brink of disaster. Do you agree with that? Well, it's, a, it's an incredible act of aggression. Uh, it is really a stunning, uh, willful choice by President Putin to uh, invade another country, uh, Russia is in violation of the sovereignty of Ukraine. Russia is in violation of its international obligations. Russia is in violation of its obligations under the UN Charter, uh, under the Helsinki Final Act. Uh, it's a violation of its obligations under the 1994 Budapest Agreement. Uh, you just don't, in the 21st century, uh, behave in 19th century fashion by invading another country on completely trumped up pretext. So it is a very serious uh, moment, but it's serious not in the context, Bob, of Russia, U.S. It's serious in terms of uh, uh, sort of the, the modern manner with which nations are going to resolve problems. There are all kinds of other options still ava available to uh, Russia. There still are. President Obama wants Obama, blah, blah, blah. The what? guy is such a fair-faced <laughs> liar and hypocrite. And I mean, he must think people are stupid. He just said that, you know, in the 21st century, you do not go around invading other countries on trumped-up charges. Okay. Where's the invasion? One small example. Iraq and Afghanistan. 2003. Ten-year and effectively ongoing occupation by U.S. troops. Decimation of the country deaths of millions of people, of citizens of those countries, and, yes, a trumped-up, provably, and internationally recognized and known by every single person and their dog, trumped-up charge. 
Yellow Cake, WMDs, anyone? Kerry? I mean, you really, he really thinks people are that stupid? And maybe they are. That's a worrying thing. Maybe people are that stupid, and they've completely forgotten about that. But when he says, in this 21st century, you do not go around invading countries on trumped-up charges, that's exactly what they did in Iraq. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, there's, no quil, there's no wiggle room there. That's exactly what everybody in the entire world knows the U.S. did in Iraq, and he's now saying that nobody's allowed to do that. And he's criticizing the U.S. for doing that. But he's not even wrong because the Russians There's didn't no invade. The long-standing agreements that Russian troops have been based in Crimea. Yeah. 1783, well, Sebastopol naval base was funded in 1783 by uh, Potemkin, the famous uh, admiral. So we're talking about uh, more than two centuries here. There are assets in Crimea. Crimea is a Russophile as strong bonds with yeah. Russia, and uh, they are there, and they've been there for centuries. Well, the thing about it is, is that he's prefaced this com- comment of, this is John Kerry we're talking about, we just played a clip from, from him, for anybody who has just joined us or just got the, the show to actually work. Uh, I know a bunch of you are having trouble getting it. Anyway, we just played a clip from Kerry who said today on, uh, on a new show in the U.S. that criticizing Putin and saying that you're not allowed to, nobody in this world is allowed to go around uh, invading our countries on trumped up charges and we've just been uh, <laughs> we've just been discussing the massive hypocrisy in that statement and the fact that that's exactly what the US did in Iraq and Afghanistan and really dozens of other places. Anyway, um, what he's complaining about, he prefaces this kind of all of these, they're, they're in breach of this treaty, that treaty, this treaty, that treaty. That's all completely irrelevant because all of those treaties were, if not explicitly, were, um, you know, agreed on in the understanding that Ukraine would not be invaded by an outside force covertly, i.e. the U.S., uh, as has happened in, in, in recent weeks, and essentially a, a democratic government overthrown by the U.S. If you do that, then all the treaties that have been signed are null and void as far as yeah. concerned, and justifiably so. So this claim that they're in violation of all these treaties is completely bogus. The, the U.N. was created to do away with what would believe to be the cause of both world wars, at least one of the causes, the creation of alliances between nation-states, mm-hmm. i.e. you would have international norms that would govern everyone, all or nothing. And you remember what Victor the whole, yeah, the whole dynamic at play here is NATO. NATO has slowly conquered. NATO's purpose is to be measure to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is gone. What happened since? NATO has slowly marched up to Russia's borders. Yeah. And you know that uh, in Europe, there are more than 40 countries. Only two are not part of NATO. Russia and uh, Cyprus. In Europe? Yeah. Montenegro isn't. Okay. <laughs> there are three. I have to go. Montenegro. Honorable, honorable mention that Montenegro. Yeah, it's a very small, small country. 600,000 people. It was just listed on my, on my source. I mean, they mentioned small countries that are not uh, very relevant politically. What do you mean that Russia is really uh, alone? Alone and on the West, all the countries are together in this coalition with the US 
against Russia. And everyone's talking about, oh, those Ruskies. They're returning to Soviet imperialism. And I'm thinking, what, what planet are these people on? <laughs> Look at the empire. Everyone knows what the empire is. Right? Yeah, I'm going to check to see if we have a call here. Okay, it sounds like you're listening, okay, right? Okay, it sounds like you're listening, right? I'm just listening. Alrighty.
that telephone conversation was released to the entire world, and all of the major news media reported on it, except they said, oh, she said the F word, and totally ignored the fact that she was just describing the government that has been put in place in the last week U.S. And nobody in the Western media is even referring to it. It's like, oh, what should we do about Putin? Is this a new Cold War? What are we going to do about them invading Ukraine? I mean, it's just flagger-stabbing. It is a painful flag to be stabbed with. Flabbergasting, really. I mean, I don't know what to say about it. Um, And remember Victoria Nuland as well, in this leaked conversation, mentioning the UN as the tool to provide this gloss of international legitimacy. And now John Kerry in this conversation which played, invoking the UN, invoking the international convention. So that's really to speak. On one side they bash the UN you know, as, you a know, pup, as, a, as a toy a puppet, and on the other side they invoke the which is them the, they invoke the UN legitimacy. Do you know who Miss Miss F the EU Newland, Mrs. Victoria F the EU Newland's husband is? Yes. Kagan? Yes, Robert Kagan. Who's he? Notorious neocon. He's a co-founder of the project, The New American Century. Bingo. So there you go. Should, nobody should be surprised here about what's going on, really. It was all written down, you know, just uh, prior to 9-11 in PNAC's documents. And it's PNAC people now who New are Pearl at, Harbor. The, at the, at the centre of this, these kind of policies. And it's all just propaganda, really, um, that people are being subjected to. It's lies and propaganda. Um, yeah, in terms of being able to pull out some farcical comments about Russia, um, well, we don't know yet. I, I think we'll see what, like, what happened in the build-up to a near war with Syria in August. There was a backlash and people rejected it. I mean, the British Parliament had to persuade. I mean, it, it voted down. It was defeated, essentially, and that was because of a public backlash because of, Syria, of yeah. what might have come. Go on. Excuse me. Uh, I'm going to see if we've got a call here. Hi, do we have a caller on the line? No, we don't. He just disappeared. Anyway, that scared him off. Um, I was going to say that... Carry on. The ability to make these farce go comments about Soviet imperialism and Russian propaganda, which is it's just laughable, people... The Western media is so dominant. It's it, online, traditional uh, media as well. <laughs> There's no such thing. Russian propaganda, you'll never hear it. For example, CNN did an interview with Putin Oh, after the Georgian war slash intervention in 2008. It was never aired. R- Russia today, the so-called Russian English language propaganda outlet, which it isn't, aired it afterwards because they got a copy of it, but it was never shown to a Western audience in which Putin said, well, you tell me, what would you do if you're in my shoes? I had intel that there were U.S. military personnel on the ground assisting the Georgians, shelling across the border into my country. What would you do? Mm -hmm. And of course, that never even made the official narrative of what went on four years ago, six years ago. It's, you know, but... The history is written and created by governments and, and presented exactly. to the media to disseminate at the time and that becomes official history and that's what's happening uh, as it's happening right now. And you see all these people discussing and arguing you know, on blogs and on comment sections on major mainstream media news websites and 
none of them have a clue about what's actually going on because none of them actually put it in context. None of them seem to, to be able to remember, you know, two years ago, let alone ten years ago. Uh, and so what is blatant hypocrisy and lying from these Western leaders does not phase them. They don't, uh, they don't remember it's a lie. They don't recognize it as a lie because they, I don't know why. I mean, and it's horrible. It's a horrible situation just to, to watch. It's like a train wreck happening, you know. And um, we're getting back to the actual, um, to the actual situation in, in Ukraine. There's a little detail that is um, back on February 5th, so almost a month ago. Uh, this was just before the beginning of the Olympics. There were two U.S. Navy warships <clears throat> that are stationed in Italy. Uh, sailed into the Black Sea, uh, supposedly to provide security assistance to the Olympic Winter Games in Sochi. Now, this is while, at the same time, Obama is not attending. The Western and Cameron, the UK leaders, are not attending. They're, they're all boycotting the Olympics. They're all poo-pooing uh, Putin and his Olympics. And uh, the media is trashing Putin and the Olympics uh, in the press. Yet, for some reason, they're well-disposed enough towards them to sail two uh, U.S. Navy warships into the Black Sea to protect the Olympics, like the, the Russians can protect them, themselves. This is obviously uh, a bullshit narrative that this is why it was happening. It was under the guise of to protect uh, the Olympics, but and I'm sure the Russians and Putin realized that, and they probably saw it as a heads up to what was actually going to happen because the Ukraine thing had been ongoing at that stage, but they probably saw it as a heads up to the time frame of uh, when they were going to set the, the the touch paper alight in Ukraine and have this revolution that it was going to be right in the middle of the, of the Olympics to do as much damage to Russian reputation as possible. Um, and it was going to be when these two ships, uh, US Navy ships, were stationed in the, in the Black Sea because they were there officially for the period of the Olympics, including the Paralympics, which is actually ongoing or has started just recently. Uh, so the time frame for them being there was going to be uh, February 7th to March 16th. So they're still there for another two weeks or so. Um, so for me, that that suggests suggest to me that this everything that we've all seen happen um, over the past few weeks concerning Ukraine and Russia was known, obviously planned well in advance by the US and the EU, by certain individuals, but also known about and more or less uh, all of the details by the Russians as well based on what was happening because you know these kind of movements of ships around the place uh, then the reason that people are given for why they're there is usually or is often mostly never the never the real reason um, and for two ships two US Navy ships to sail, sail into the Black Sea just before the Olympics on the on the premise of protecting the Olympics is nonsense given the context and given what we've seen happen since, it's pretty obvious why they were there. Um, I have a report here from earlier this week. Well, it's only came out now, but it concerns something that was going on at the height of the crisis in Kiev. Um, so they didn't just go and sack downtown Kiev and then, of course, uh, the president's residence, which... He shared with a lot of other people. Anyway, they also specifically targeted 
the homes of <clears throat> MPs, some of whom were not affiliated with the government. They were, let's say, center from centrist parties and all over Ukraine. And, uh, yeah, they didn't just, you know, sack them out of some kind of fit of rage because they're all little neo-Nazis. They were specifically looking for documents in their homes. Mm-hmm. And the Russians are saying that um, they, they captured a few of them, I think, trying to cross over back into Russia because some of them were Russian, some of these people doing the actual looting. And uh, there's a testimony from a guy who said that there were American military personnel and plainclothes who members of the right sector and the neo-Nazis would then hand the documents over to. I thought that was interesting. Of course, that would go down as Russian propaganda. But uh, it's, it's one of many stories about direct foreign involvement on the ground in these last few weeks. So that's one. The other one is an IDF unit was in charge of one of the militias on the streets in Kiev. I always wondered about that. You know, it was so organized. We've really never seen it before. It's sort of the fire starts and next thing, these guys are, well, they took over the city. I mean, that kind of organization level. You saw some of the equipment they had. Of course, they got guns because they raided a police or military depot in the west of the country and took weapons into the city. But I wonder, there must be there must be people there who've been there before, you know, know what they're doing. Turns out there's an, a, an Israeli, um, he said, they said former member of the IDF, led one of these militias throughout the duration of protests in Kiev. Oh, and by the way, him and six other former Israeli Defense Force mm-hmm. troops. So, well, the Israelis are well... Uh, well trained and well practiced, and uh, a lot of they have a lot of experience with uh, kind of urban warfare on the streets of Palestine. So uh, they'd be an ideal uh, former members of the IDF, the ideal uh, members of of that kind of a phony paid uprising of fascist neo Nazis. I mean, that's pretty much what the Israelis are. So good job. Let me just check to see if we've got. Do we have a call on the line? Hi. Hi. Are you a caller or are you just listening? Yes, I'm the caller. Um, great discussion. The impact of so many of the powerful regions affect the entire planet. I'm concerned that the United Nations, which was created after America would not support the League of Nations, has such a stranglehold on many aspects of our global political movements when the Security Council, um, which I was posting in the chat room, is basically comprised of nations that have nuclear weapons with one or two nations as stepchildren. It's synonymous to a school with a powerful gang with the biggest bats, but they're the ones that get to make all the decisions when in actuality in America and probably in Russia, the average person just wants you know, clean air, a good school for their child, etc. Um, it's so alarming. It seems as though our political system is hijacked. Global, not just in America, in so many nations, and we end up our children fighting the wars for people who don't care about the environment or, you know, our children. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. I'm in America, and I think I don't. I haven't been to Russia, um, but I get the impression I could be wrong that the average Russian is not living in the you know luxury, nor is the average American. Um, but no. there are billionaires in <laughs> Russia, and there are billionaires in America, financially mm-hmm. billionaires. So somewhere in the middle, even in China, you have billionaires in China, but the average Chinese person is not really. Uh, reaping those benefits, I just feel as though we're all being played in every nation. I mean, one group comes up and says they care about us, whether it's a political group or a religious group, but in actuality, it's just a like a store putting out a sign. If they think you like pizza, they put pizza up. If they think you like chicken, they put chicken, but when it boils down to it, each of our nations are being raped by the same globalists. That the way it looks, the more I look at you know yeah. what's happening in our world. Well, that's pretty much the way it is and has been for a long time in history. Um, it seems to me that uh, there's always been an elite, or for a long time there's been an elite on this planet in terms of a wealthy elite in whatever format, you know, be it the church or uh, kings and queens or, or, or modern day political elite. And they're their goal seems to be to maintain their positions as the elite, the wealthy elite. And the only way they can do that is to make sure that the masses below them remain controlled and, you know, relatively uh, poor and, uh, and keep producing, uh, doing the, the work, you know, they're producing the sweat of their brow that produces uh, all of the, the things that are necessary for any civilization or country to operate. And, and they basically reap the benefits. And, um, and, you know, they tell themselves that, you know, they're doing this as a service to us because, you know, the ordinary people, they need leadership. And that may be yeah. true, but or, ordinary people need good leadership, not greedy, uh, selfish, psychopathic leadership, you know. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think your analysis of it is pretty much on the money, you know. And, uh, and actually, the two elements you mentioned are not mutually exclusive. Ultimately, it's uh, one word governmental. The world, your world is... Uh, is led, is controlled by this elite, but it doesn't preclude the possibility for fake or real oppositions to some extent between uh, some factions within the elite. And actually, it can be uh, even complementary because wars is a good way to hysterize population and stimulate this feeling, this sentiment in the, um, amongst citizens that, uh, yeah, they should be afraid and uh, there is a threat and uh, we need the elite even more than before because the war is looming and uh, we have to be protected. And also a way to transfer more financial uh, cash, capital, to the firms and stockholders that are making, helping to make the military, you know, machines. I can tell by the accents that we have... All of us come from, it sounds like Ireland, maybe France, am I correct? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so here we are. I'm in America. You know, I have a different accent. We're saying the same things just with different accents. But for thousands yeah. of years, we have been going through this. At some point, I mean, when are we, not you and I, and we're trying our best, but when are we as humanity going to get it? And listen, these folks don't care about us. Let's come together and, you know, break out the peace pipe and, and, and whoop some booty. You know, put them out of office, tie them to a tree, whatever we have to do to, you know, get them out of there. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, well, I mean, it can be done, but uh, as you can imagine, the elite are aware of uh, that threat or that the potential among people to do that. And they go to a lot of uh, uh, effort yeah. <laughs> to make sure it doesn't happen, you know. 
I mean, you, are you from New York by any chance? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, right maybe you're aware United of the United Nations, actually. Yeah. Maybe you're aware of the Occupy Wall Street uh, situation that went on a couple of years ago. I mean, you saw what happened to that. I mean, it was just kind of like pretty much beaten down and made to go away. Can I give you a, a few seconds on Occupy Wall Street? They had, like the Tea Party, I think at the core there is a positive that could have come out of it. The problem with the Tea Party and the Occupy Wall Street movements are they want a piece of the slave master's pie. It doesn't matter that women are oppressed and that African Americans and third world regions are being raped by Wall Street. It doesn't matter that Native Indians died and continue to die and struggle on reservations. Those movements, in my opinion, are just trying to get their share. They're not saying we have fundamental flaws in our economic system that takes advantage of other people and creates wars to make more money. So I didn't support the Occupy Wall Street movement for that reason. I am a black African-American male, and I didn't see a me to just continue to agree that it's okay if the 1% share with the 99%. My position is no. The whole system is we have to change it from the bottom to the top totally. So they had a yeah. core that I believed in, but they had weaknesses because it off the real issues, meaning if you share all the stolen resources, people are still hurting in Nigeria, in the Caribbean, in Harlem, you know, in South Central, Ireland, etc., and in much of China. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Uh, it's a problem. Uh, it's a perennial problem. It's a problem that's always been around. You know, it's, uh, people have written multiple very long tomes on trying to figure out, you know, what the, what the solution to it would be, you know, reforming the political system, reforming the social system. Um, and to date, nothing has really changed. You know, it's maintained itself in this format of uh, an upper class and an elite class and essentially the rest of us, you know. And... Um, I'm not sure uh, if there is a, there is a solution from a from an idea point of view in terms of an ideology that I mean it's probably very simple to put together the framework for a society that would be egalitarian and everybody would be happy and peaceful and content but it's never going to happen as uh, as we understand it when you have the uh, problem of essentially psychopaths in, in, in amongst normal human beings who are kind of really fundamentally different uh, in the way they're made up and the way they think and the drives and the goals that they have and they tend to rise to positions of power and that happens over and over again and until people really uh, wake up to that fact and realize that that is really the core problem there's one thing that's stopping a normal decent uh, peaceful human society from developing on this planet and it's the agenda of people who who don't want that kind of a society. That's not in them to produce or to live in that kind of a society. What's in them is to dominate and control and, in some cases, to destroy. Uh, they're just insanely or insatiably greedy, and and they can't change because they haven't changed. You know, I mean, the the, the, the testimony to the fact that that they are very different is that they have never changed. They have always risen to the top and always exerted their power and influence to the detriment of ordinary people. 
so I think history bears out, uh, in the absence of any actual scientific evidence that, that, that this is true, that psychopaths have ruled us forever, I think history, in a circumstantial way, bears that out. Hopefully we can, those of us speaking and listening that believe, um, come together, um, meaning we have right now a captive audience of people that probably feel the same way. So it may mean us saying, hey, once a month, why don't we have a, a um, you know, a chat. There's a group that we have called SOS Earth Avengers. It's SOS mm. like Save Our Souls Earth Avengers. And we've been trying to bring in host body that has these sentiments. Here's why. We could share resources. I'll give you an example. I do tons of research, right? There isn't the need for other people to do the same research. They're wasting their time. I could say, hey, here's a file, information I found out about um, homelessness in New York and how it relates to Ireland, for example. Or, hey, I'm doing an event in New York about uh, poverty. And if you're in New York and you're doing an event, we can share the microphones or we can share the cost of printing flyers. We have mm-hmm. thousands of groups and shows. We need a mechanism where we don't have to agree on everything, but we can say, okay, share resources. So if, you, if any of you are interested, SOS Earth Avengers, and I'll post your link on some of my social media, and hopefully we okay. can save this planet from these sociopaths and psychopaths, including President Obama, who is yeah. just a puppet meant to distract yeah. us. Absolutely. Yeah, post post a link to that on the on the chat room there, and, uh, and we'll look at it. Thank you, brother. Thank you for your... My kids, I'm Thank going to be listening as I cook for my children. Thank you so much. Stay Bye. strong. We're going to do it. You too. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Thank you, brother. Yeah, yeah he, he cut to the chase, huh? Yeah, people need to... If, if any, I mean, nobody's going to save the world because there's far too many people who don't want the world to be saved and are happy with it the way it is. They need an authority, and they'll take any authority uh, of the day, and the authority that they'll always get will be the one that is willing to do uh, the most heinous and despicable acts to maintain themselves in power, and people therefore, a lot of people, probably 50% more, 60 70%, maybe I don't know how many, a lot of people in this world, the majority, will be half of that kind of authority because any authority is better than no authority. Uh, and... They're happy with it, and they're, and they're not moved to, to change it. But as our caller just said, uh, there are people who are interested, and those people should think about what he just suggested, which was forming kind of communities together, if only kind of in, in, in terms of sharing information and getting together. You don't necessarily have to go and kind of start a commune or anything like that, but take the first steps towards basically you know, taking control of your own uh, futures and your own lives back from the system type of thing that you become dependent on uh, and, and just follow that and, and see where it goes. And also, crucially, you need to be aware of the nature of the system and that's going to look uh, unfavorably on that kind of a thing and to protect yourself, protect yourselves in whatever community you, you do, type of community that you develop. You need to be aware of the, the threats to it and the nature of the system in which we live. And, uh, and that's probably the best you can hope for. The people who are interested in doing it should do it. It's not about imposing utopia on the entire world because it's an impossible task given that a majority of people aren't interested. And that's a hard thing to come to terms with and to accept, but that seems to be the nature of the world. Or 
maybe people, not that people aren't interested, but they're simply not willing to do the work necessary to change the world in that way. Uh, they're not motivated enough. So face facts and do what you can in, in your own sphere of influence. And take what comes. See what happens. To infinity and beyond. Yes, indeed. Um, to say a few things about some historical context. Lay it on us there. So, <clears throat> Russia was completely shafted in the 1990s. You had the IMF, the vulture capitalists. And they had a list of specific cities, industries, factories. They were going to go in, <coughs> clean up, basically take over Russia. Okay, that more or less happened. It, Yeltsin eventually put a stop to it, but it wasn't until Putin comes to power that things start to change. What's going on there? Is Putin resisting the program? Is he not with the program? Is he trying to find his own niche within the program? I don't know. But let's look at let's look at what happened the last ten years. So, uh, I think for me the first red flag of Putin not being on board was the build-up to the Iraq War. He got France and Germany to agree, the two leaders then, Chirac and Schroeder, to agree not to support an invasion of Iraq if they could not provide, the U.S. could not provide evidence of WMDs. As a result of that little alliance, the U.S. and U.K. had to drop up to that point, they, they were negotiating, will we go to the UN? Yes, we will. We're going to seek um, UN approval to go in and do this. They dropped it at that point when they realized that Russia, France, and Germany would not support the war. Just after that, months after, we had the first clash with the oligarchs in Russia. Berezovsky, um, Putin decided to nail him for tax evasion. But what he was really doing was something that had helped solidify his control of Russia. He had said to the oligarchs, look, you can keep what you pillaged in the 90s so long as you don't interfere with what I'm trying to do. In other words, you stay aligned with the government. I'm not even going to come after you for back taxes or I'm not even going to... I'm not going to nationalize. He didn't do what a, the mistake a lot of new leaders made in other countries in the world. They come in, they have maybe they have a, okay, an idea of how we can make things fairer for the little people. Let's nationalize everything so that the income from their own natural resources, at least some of it, goes towards helping lift them out of poverty. He, Putin didn't even go that far. He just said, look, just play ball. You can keep doing what you're doing. But that already set off one of them, and in the end, he went after Berezovsky. Then the next guy came up, Khodorkovsky, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. He was arrested in October 2003. That's the same year as the Iraq War started. He went one step further than Berezovsky, who had fled to London. Khodorkovsky had started his own kind of George Soros-style open society. I think it was called Open... I think his was called Open Society or something, or that's, Open Society. that's the name of it. Anyway, he, he modeled a kind of a, a democratic movement for change 
within, within Russia based on the existing NGOs that have been in Russia since the 1990s. And of course, Putin, he, he broke Putin's cardinal rule. You don't get involved with politics. You, can, you stay with business, let me handle what's going on in Russia. That's where the trial came about. He got him on uh, tax evasion and sent to prison. In the meantime, Putin is rearming Russia. Totally modernized their whole military, but he did it. He actually, I think the Russian military was something like half a million strong in terms of military personnel. He slashed that right down. It's just over 100,000. He reduced the army, but completely rearmed it. Then he passed what something that was castigated in the West, the anti-extremism law, which was pretty vague, to be honest. But the intention was clear. He was going to go after all of these NGOs that have been set up in Russia by the National Endowment for Democracy, which is basically a CIA front. So it was clear that he was going after the the mechanism through which the globalists <clears throat> capture a country and, may, and and try to exert control from within. Mm-hmm. At the very least, it shows that he knows how their system works, and he would resist it. Uh, now, in terms of, has anything actually changed? For, for ordinary Russians, are things better or worse than they were in 1999, for example? Yeah, they are. You still have oligarchs. You still have um, massive disparity between a wealthy elite and impoverished people. Like everywhere else. Like everywhere else. But, get this, by the West's own statistical counts, I think it's the OECD or whatever, Russian unemployment now, after this great big global financial crisis, is 5.6%. Yeah, there are less polls, and the polls are less polls. The the official unemployment rate in America is 6%. Yeah. But last week, a Wall, I mean, a Wall Street analyst said, yeah, right, it's the real unemployment rate in the U.S. is 37%. Yeah, I mean, under Putin, under Putin things obviously clearly did approve by any kind of anybody's analysis, you know, the living conditions of people improved. So, uh, you know, given the nature of this world where you don't have a utopia and you have to deal with the system as it is and live within it, uh, by any standards, Putin has done well uh, by the Russian people, and there is no call whatsoever for uh, there being any mass discontent within Russia. Uh, to you know, in in the absence of there being mass discontent in America, for example, there should be if there if, if there's mass discontent in Russia, it should apply to America and probably even more so for America. Um, so, and this is where all of these supposedly NGOs, non-governmental organizations funded by the West, uh, funded by America, uh, have gained a foothold within uh, within Russia and are being funded to rabble-rouse and to, to try to destabilize the government through popular revolt and uprising and things like that ridiculous group Pussy Riot and, and various other individuals and groups who 
according to Russia, and justifiably according to the Russian government, are just a bunch of uh, agents of a foreign power who are unjustifiably uh, trying to stir things up for no good reason. And if that happened in America or any European country, they would be uh, reacted to in exactly the same way as uh, Putin has reacted to them. So um, what everybody is seeing this whole debate about Russia and Putin and, you know, um, you know, kind of draconian measures and uh, dictatorship and all this kind of stuff. It's all lies. It's all bullshit lies made up by the Western press for the consumption of the Western population. And many people are sucking it up. And, you know, to their own detriment because they're believing a bunch of lies about... Uh, and, and, and those lies will, will ultimately lead them to give support to uh, a pretty evil uh, kind of regime or group of countries i.e. The, the U.S. and various European countries who, uh, who are simply determined to ensure that the elite remain the elite and poor people remain effectively slaves and workers. And, you know, it's ridiculous. So, um, well, that's, that's, a key, that's a key way of describing it, remains so. In, in the narrative you'll hear on, in the corporate media, the situation arose in Ukraine oh dear, someone mishandled the Ukrainian economy. Oh dear, they're in great debt. Oh dear, we need to lend them money. And then that this crisis sparked in November last year when the EU, uh, Washington, Brussels said, no, it's either or. You either take the money from Moscow, you take it from us, i.e. the IMF. Nobody's talking about how the situation came about. Ukraine joined the IMF in 1992. It was relatively prosperous to what it is now. It had its own industry. It was completely destroyed, just like Russia. I've got a report in front of me. It says the real amount of debt Ukraine is in now is $145 billion, which is at least 100% of its GDP. Mm-hmm. This idea that the crisis began with, oh, who's going to loan them the money? ignores 20 years of the IMF giving them these loans they never needed to begin with, along with the conditionalities that come with an IMF loan. They were told, trust us, just privatize everything, sell it all, and have your currency um, float freely on the international exchange rate, open everything up. The country was devastated. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. That's what happened, has happened time and time again. I, I submit that a genocide took place in both Russia and Ukraine in the 1990s. The population of Ukraine in 1992 was 56 million people. population today is officially 45 million. But they do a little fiddling with the statistics even there because 7 million of those permanently work across the border in Russia where there are jobs and send the money home. The real rate, of the actual number of people living in Ukraine today is 38-some million. At least a third of the country was either either died from starvation and or died of or a whole swathe of elderly people just died off from malnutrition and disease in the 1990s. And then the other half have to go to Russia to find work. Yeah. And it's in this context of the extent to which Ukraine 
the facts on the ground, this is why they are dependent on Russia. This is why you have so many people who live in the borderlands between them, mm-hmm. who are, of course, Russian. Mm-hmm. Even if they're Ukrainian, for 20 years they've been depending on Russia to survive because their idiot leaders from 20 years ago put them in this mess. And now the IMF slash EU is coming in to save the day. Yeah. We'll just ignore what happened before that. Yeah, so the truth behind it is that for 20 years the IMF has been pillaging and plundering and eviscerating the Ukrainian economy and it has culminated in uh, in the events of last year, late last year and this year, where people basically had had enough, where they had been ground down to the point where you know they were willing to get out in the streets and protest in large numbers, 250,000, 300,000, but peacefully protest. And uh, and their problem was basically the state of the, the economy. And this had nothing to do with uh, Yanukovych, the guy who was ousted, uh, because he was he had only been there for four, less than four years. But this goes back 20 years and is directly responsible uh, or is directly attributable to the IMF, and essentially which is America's bank and, um, and the bank of the major Western nations. And they go around the world... Uh, pillaging and plundering countries uh, through their dodgy loans and, and their uh, free market policies. Uh, so that's what caused the problem. That's what led to the protests mm-hmm. in Ukraine. But the U.S., with their foreign agents and foreign groups and foreign funding and foreign training, including Israel, came in and um, you know, radicalized uh, that, those protests small numbers of them and, started, and created the scenes that we've all seen on television and, and used that to usher in uh, a government that would continue to allow the IMF to continue to control and uh, pillage and plunder the Ukrainian economy and impose austerity measures and just squeeze the people. Mm. It's, there's no, there's no, not in any context is there any suggestion that, that the IMF or the West being in control of the Ukrainian government would ever have improved the lot of the people by any measures that they were planning to implement. They were simply going to squeeze the people even further. And that's what they do. That's the truth behind it, but officially the Western media and Western government narrative is that it's all Putin's fault, uh, which is a, a complete lie, and it's a monstrous lie. And that's, you know, a la Hitler or Goebbels or whoever said it, it's the big lie, the big giant lie. You basically, if you're going to tell a lie, you say it exactly, you know, you create a, a, a narrative that is diametrically the opposite, it's so far away from the truth that no one will ever think that you would have created such a lie and told such a lie, therefore they believe it. And it's a plausible uh, reality. I mean, just to give people an example, in terms of the hypocrisy, Puerto Rico is, uh, is a, a kind of, it's a non-incorporated territory of the United States, essentially owned by the United States, Puerto Rico and in the, in the Caribbean. So this, what's happening in Ukraine is more or less like... Um, the U.S. having, as it does, having uh, military bases on Ukraine and a lot of investment, in industrial or economic investment in, sorry, in Puerto Rico, and becoming aware that Russia had, you know, extended its influence all the way across the Atlantic and started fostering groups within Puerto Rico to to lobby for and to protest for uh, essentially the removal of Puerto Rico from. Uh, America's control and influence, essentially a part of America, and uh, and what's expected to happen based on John Kerry and the U.S. government's logic is that 
uh, in that situation where Russia was doing that to a part of American territory, uh, the Americans would just have to sit back and say, okay, no problem, we're just going to let it happen because the democratic will of the Puerto Rican people, knowing very clearly that the Russians are involved in creating that situation and trying to steal that piece of uh, American, essentially American territory, away from America. And does anybody believe that America would just sit back and take that? No, but Russia is expected to sit back and take it. So it's a complete farce. It's a complete farce and a complete, uh, I just I keep getting back to this word hypocrisy, the level of hypocrisy and lies is, uh, is staggering. It's staggering. Now, are we going to try and answer the question, are we on the eve of World War Three here? No, because if you look at history and stuff, uh, people tend to think the official narrative and what people believe about wars, let's say at least wars within the last 100, 120, 130 years, whatever, that those wars, let's look at the Second World War and the First World War, for example, that those wars actually happen as a result of um, people just, you know, different countries having an argument and sending their armies in and then it's just like, well, how okay. dare you insult my mistress? Exactly. All right, I'm going to send my army out. Exactly. I'm going to, and then the, the actual battle, the actual war, is, you know, it's undecided. It's, uh, it's just chaotic, mm. and who knows what ha- who knows what will happen. You know, it's kind of like two boxers in a <clears> ring. You don't know which one's going to win, you know? And that's what people think. Uh, most people think that um, that's the way wars have happened. The Second World War and the First World War have happened in the Vietnam War and all the wars that you can think of. Um, but that's not actually how they happen, because wars... Uh, countries can only wage wars if they have enough money to continue to wage the wars and have the means of production to provide the tools of war. If you don't have an army, or if you don't have fuel for your airplanes or uh, factories uh, to, and, and the means of technology to, to actually produce all the tools for a war, you can't actually wage a war. You're, you're going to bow out of it very quickly. You're going to lose it. So the only reason wars actually continue, and this is true of the Second World War, is that uh, they're financed by people who control the finances or control the, mm-hmm. the economy, control the supply of money, essentially. And those are bankers, and they have been since, uh, really since you know, the end of the 19th century into the 20, early 20th century. That was established where uh, international banking uh, uh, essentially was in a position, international bankers were in a position to control the supply of money, control the flow of money to countries, and to cut it off. And also, uh, in the case of America, America was in a position to uh, provide technology or not to certain countries. And so the means to wage a war and to win a war is controlled by, uh, fundamentally by uh, the control of money and the flow of money. And, uh, and that is controlled by bankers and has been for over 100 years. So the idea that there would be some kind of like uh, spontaneous third world war as a result of this and that it's like, oh my God, what's going to happen isn't really accurate, uh, historically speaking. So, and it's no reason to believe that doesn't, the same rules don't apply today. So if there's going to be a war between America and uh, uh, Soviet Russia, or not Soviet Russia, between America and... Joe! <laughs> between America and... Uh, and, and free Russia. And, and free Russia, then um, it's, a, it's an entirely manipulated affair, and the outcome is already planned. That doesn't mean a lot of people won't die as a result, but you know, don't worry that, you know, don't think... I don't worry that it would be a nuclear war, for example, because that wouldn't be in the interest of the people who control this planet. So yeah. uh, there's not going to be any nuclear war. That's just to scare people. But overall, I think, <clears throat> generally speaking, my assessment would be that all of this, however real that may be at certain levels, at a kind of higher level, it's theatre. Yeah. Uh, John Kerry and even Putin and stuff, 
none of them were sincere in their saber rattling. Uh, and of course, apart from any actual war that might happen or any kind of skirmish or, you know, well, you see the way that, that countries are taken over by economics and by infiltration, as we've just been describing. That's generally how wars are waged these days. They're not actually military wars, really. Um, there's the odd time there's a bit of NATO bombing just to, you know, facilitate a regime change type thing. But there haven't been any all-out wars in that sense for, for, for quite a long time. I mean, the Iraq war wasn't a war. It's a total misnomer. Iraq was a turkey shoot. I mean, the Americans went into Iraq knowing full well that they'd just walk in and they'd be in Baghdad. And yeah, the, the CIA way. had... The CIA had to create an opponent and sustain it yeah. so, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So apart from the actual benefits from, from doing that in terms of economic control of a country's resources and you know, wealth flowing back out of the country to the, to the elite in the West and stuff, uh, from the point of view of the oligarchs in general or the, uh, the elite in general in any country, uh, the threat of war is very useful to them uh, from the point of view of controlling the population mm-hmm. and keeping the population in power. And this applies to Putin. As well, yeah, because obviously Putin has a, has a vested interest in in being the president of Russia, and and to continue to be the president of Russia, he needs to keep uh, the people on his side. Now he can try to do that uh, by genuine means, but um, he's not going to look a gift horse in the mouth in a certain sense. That in this, in, in terms of what has been offered to him right now, which is to take action and to saber-rattle a bit and to put the troops in and stuff, because that reflects very well on him in terms of the people back home. Back home in Russia, they see him as a strong leader who's willing to stand up to the U.S. <clears throat> They're all, you know, generally speaking, Russians are going to be patriotic and pro-Russia. Uh, so it reflects well on him to be seen to, to be standing up against the U.S. and taking this action and maybe giving them a, a bloody nose type of thing. And so he's going to take that, you know, um, and at the same time, it's beneficial, even if nothing comes of it, it's beneficial also for the U.S. just to have this threat of war, rumors of war and stuff, because it keeps the American people and people in Europe afraid because the threat of war uh, scares them and it, it, it affects their sense of security. <clears throat> and it all, it, what it does is that it simply makes them, throws them further, deeper into the arms of their government and their leaders to protect them because... They're, they're being made painfully aware of this threat by the media all over the place of this potential. You know, is there going to be another world war? Is there going to be, you know, so ultimately the benefits uh, to that, to, to even just suggesting that there might be a war, uh, are, are, are many for, for, for people in positions of power, the elite of this world. Yeah, maybe a parameter that was not present during previous conflicts that right now we've uh, seen for months an increase in uh, celestial activities, cosmic activities. So the only difference I can see compared to previous conflicts is that because of this new cosmic context, will the PTB need a, a war in order to disguise those celestial intentions? Because a war help maintaining the fundamental illusion on which the power of the elite is based, that we need them and that they protect us. Well, if they acknowledge the fact that uh, cosmic intention is not very positive and uh, we are definitely under threat and they cannot do anything against it, a war is definitely better than acknowledging this uh, negative evolution. Absolutely. I think that's a big if. If 
the powers that be are aware. Or even aware, yeah. I, yeah. The way I was going to ask you this question was, so, Pierre, <laughs> how is all this stress, because it's increasing the stress levels oh, up a notch, you know? How is it all playing out? What stress levels? On the planet. Well, the, the, the threat of global nuclear war. Oh. And or any kind of war. Well, I, can, I can give you one breaking news example of how it's affecting the planet. Uh, Bring it. There has just, in the past hour or so, um, there has been uh, an earthquake right off the coast of Crimea. A 4.5 magnitude earthquake off the coast of Crimea. Hmm. Hmm. Are there typically earthquakes there? We know. Who knows, but it's interesting timing. Sure. Uh, Black Sea, it's, no, it's not a, a super stable area. It's not so far away from Turkey. It's, uh, but in terms of disguising intentions, not false. somebody will claim that that was an underground nuclear test by Russia. Yeah, uh, an unknown weapon, yeah. allowing them to trigger artificial earthquakes. Yeah, possibly. Um, yeah, I think... Whatever about to what extent they're aware of and aligning some kind of agenda to cosmic catastrophe and so-called earth changes, the two do, I think, work together in tandem. You know, you'll get an inc- your, your environment will reflect back to you what's mm-hmm. going on. If there's chaos on the planet between people, the weather will be chaotic. Yeah. yeah, you can even enter some kind of negative feedback loops. If you imagine PTBs organizing or starting wars in order to hide celestial intentions and celestial activity, you can imagine that those wars and the amount of life and suffering they induce would feed even more the cosmic intention the war was designed to hide. So yeah. you see, basically, the the war is reinforcing the symptom it's supposed to hide. So it can get worse and worse. But tell me this: Just we're we're in a we're in a solar maximum right now, aren't we? Yes, but not really. We should be in a solar maximum, but the sun has been unusually quiet for a solar maximum, right? Uh, amongst other things, yeah, the solar cycle 24. That's a solar cycle we're going through right now. Um, has reached its maximum, quote-unquote, but it's quite a peculiar maximum in the sense that uh, usually some maximum are, they last about one month or two months, it goes up and then it goes down. And in this case, there's been so far a double spike, and the minimum, like the maximum for solar cycle 24, has been very long. So basically we're going through a very sluggish, long, and, weird, and uh, weak solar cycle with a maximum of about uh, 70 sunspots a month, about uh, 10 years ago, we were reaching 200 since about a month. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's weak. And isn't, <clears throat> I mean, we've been having a lot of, as many people listening will know, there's been a lot of very strange weather over the past, you know, this winter, let's say, um, in the past three or four months. And the official understanding, I think, is that solar radiation provokes uh, weather and uh, particularly in the case of chaotic and strange weather, uh, violent weather as we've been having uh, around the world, that would surely that would be associated with a high number or a high uh, level of activity on the sun. Yeah. So uh, does that theory have to be thrown out? 
Yes and no. The, um, historically, there is a correlation between solar activity and temperature variation and uh, level of chaos, frequency of hurricanes, frequency of tornadoes. There is a correlation. Now, the correlation is not necessarily positive, and a correlation is not a causation. Uh, seeing that the curves of solar activity and, uh, for example, hurricane frequency go up and down together in a positive way, doesn't show, uh, doesn't prove that the sun is a cause for hurricane. Actually, the sun and hurricane could be two effects of another third unknown factor. Right? Like what? Oh, no, <laughs> like, like nothing. To, well, so where I'm going to is, because um, the following question will be some. Oh, is there a causation and yeah, how is the causation well, working? So I'm asking the question. That's the uh, question, yeah. Yeah, and for, for long time it was kind of puzzling because the, the correlation between cooling phases, ice age, and weak solar activity was uh, clearly demonstrated. Yeah. And um, so one obvious hypothesis was, uh, okay, the sun is shining less. You see, in winter when you go out, Compared to summer, it's less hot, so there's less radiation, and that's why the, there's global cooling. Actually, it's not really true because uh, scientists measure what they call irradiance, you know, radiation, solar radiation on the surface of the planet when there's no cloud. And uh, between a solar maximum and a solar minimum, the ir irradiance variation is about 0.1%. So that's not the variation in radiation, solar radiation, that can explain cooling and warming. Um, however, there's, there's another mechanism that seems to partly explain the, the process. It involves cosmic rays and clouds. So maybe I should explain a bit more about what are cosmic rays and what are clouds. Okay. Cosmic rays basically is, um, say it's protons flying from stars generated by stars, supernovas, including our sun. So positive protons flying in the space. Our sun generates such uh, cosmic rays, but weak ones. Protons, but they don't go very fast. They don't have a high level of energy. Unlike the cosmic rays coming from supernovas and big stars. So on one side we have cosmic rays, that we know a bit more about now. And on the other side we have clouds. Um, what we have to know about clouds is that clouds are net coolers. Clouds reflect sun rays more than they reflect Earth radiation. So the more clouds you have, the more the planet cools down. And now you have the work of... Um, and a bit more about cloud. For clouds to form, you need um, three factors, basically. First, you need temperature to cool down enough for the, the gases, for the, the water vapor to reach a dew point. B, you need a nucleation, a nucleus, nucleation agent, some kind of dust in the atmosphere around which the water doublet with the agglomerate. And third, when we talk about it, you, there are some electrical influence that catalyze this nucleation process, the formation of droplets, i.e. formation of, of clouds. Okay? And now you have the, the scientist from Denmark, Swensmark, who showed that. And here is the causation. When solar activity is low, the magnetic shield of the sun, 
that is all around the solar system is weak. Crazy, high-energy cosmic rays generated by big stars and supernovas can enter our solar system and reach our planet more easily. Okay? So it's kind of counterintuitive. It means less solar radiation, less solar activity, means more cosmic rays more high-energy cosmic rays, because, of course, the sun generates less cosmic rays, less solar winds, but the solar winds are low-energy cosmic rays that don't manage to go into the Earth's atmosphere, so there's no influence of cloud formation, unlike the high-energy cosmic rays. Those high-energy cosmic rays, to put it simply, along their path within the atmosphere, generate electrons, and those electrons are catalyzers of cloud formation. Basically, they will agglomerate free molecules, uh, mostly uh, oxygen molecules and uh, sulfur molecules that are in suspension in the atmosphere. They will agglomerate them, so they become particles big enough to become nucleus for droplet formation for cloud formation. Okay, so that, that's one of the that's one of the processes. You understand low solar activity, more incoming high energy cosmic rays, more clouds cooling because low altitude clouds are net coolers. Why is there more high energy solar radiation with when there's less sunspots and less solar flares? Because if solar activity is reduced, the, let's call it the magnetic shield around the solar system is reduced to protect shield. us. The, yeah. Or, yeah, the heliosphere or heliosheath protects us less from high energy cosmic rays coming from space. So the result is that here in, within the Earth atmosphere, you have more of those high energy cosmic rays coming in, generating more electrons along that path, stimulating the formation of clouds, electrons be, being a nucleation agents. So you're, saying, you're saying that when there is solar activity, of a low energy nature. I, I didn't quite understand why when the sun is quiet, yes. there's more high energy. Yeah, it's counterintuitive because the sun generates low energy radiation in the form of solar flares. In the form of solar winds, yeah, solar, protons. Yeah. But low energy, low speed solar winds or cosmic rays that don't have enough energy to enter the Earth atmosphere, mm -hmm. and to trigger, trigger cloud formation, particularly mm -hmm. low-altitude cloud formation, are the main net coolers as far as Earth temperature is concerned. So you have this first factor. Lower solar activity results in more cosmic and solar winds, and therefore more clouds and cooling. But there are other factors. Remember when I was describing clouds, I was saying that... Uh, for clouds to form, you need dust around which the water droplets with a agglomerate, condensate. And um, as evidence suggests strongly, there's been a strong increase in cometary activity. <coughs> New moons acquired by, uh, our, by uh, nearby planets within the solar systems. New asteroids being regularly di discovered. New comets. <coughs> New moons which would in fact be captured asteroids or comets into the orbits of the planets. That's what you mean there. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, because um, when you 
Actually, there's no obvious difference between an asteroid and a moon. Both are pieces of rocks in the space, a moon being simply an asteroid that was caught in a revolutionary orbit around the planet. And um, so all those evidence, increase in fireballs, the global dimming as well, um, the increase in, in atmospheric dust, all those elements, evidence points toward a, an increase in cometary dust in the atmosphere. And this cometary dust acts as nucleation agent, nucleus, for cloud formation. So we have this second factor that uh, increase the cloudiness, global cloud cover. And actually, since around uh, 2000, you can see that uh, cloudiness indeed has been increasing overall around the planet. So that's just cloudiness, not okay. storms. Oh, oh, that's something else. Um, because, you know, we've had this spectacular array of storms storming across the Atlantic over the past two months, hitting the UK, which is kind of unprecedented in recent recent uh, history. I mean, I don't think there... I think most people, most meteorologists all said that it was... Um, they can't remember it ever happening in such an intense and consistent way okay. as yeah. far back as they can remember. 250 years since the beginning of the, the records in UK, uh, well, there are at least two factors here. Um, the first factor is basically the reduced solar activity leads to uh, overall, here I'm not uh, differentiating high energy and low energy cosmic rays, but overall there are le less cosmic rays reaching the ionosphere, the Earth ionosphere. So, if you close your eyes, you can imagine the planet. Around the planet, the ionosphere, and the ionosphere is positively charged by the solar winds, okay? So, you have this positive ionosphere and uh, this negative planet, Earth, okay? So, between both, within the atmosphere, you have an electric current, an electric field, okay? Now, dust, atmospheric dust, reduce the conductivity of the atmosphere. So there is something we call fair weather circulation, which is basically electrons. Since the planet is more negative than the ionosphere, you have electrons that fly up in the sky to rebalance this charge difference between the positive atmosphere, the positive ionosphere, and the negative Earth surface. All right? That's a fair weather circulation. Now, if you factor in this increase in cometary dust, you have an atmosphere that is less conductive. You have a limited fair weather circulation. Imagine again this electron at the earth surface that is pulled, that is pulled by the positive ionosphere. Instead of raising up and reaching the atmosphere and rebalancing the charge, it will be caught by some of those dust particles that are not mobile compared to electrons. They are big, they have uh, inertia. And you see the selection, they're going up, they go up, and they're caught by this dust more and more. And that's how you have cloud formation and creation of atmospheric regions with a strong 
negative potential. Okay? Mm -hmm. And this is one of the causes for hurricanes or depressions, storms, lightning, or even rain. It's basically two phenomena are basically rebalancing phenomena. Hurricane, lightning, rains, lands, the charge difference between some regions of the atmosphere and, and, the, ground. Earth, and the Earth's surface. Yeah. A lightning is a typical case. Lightning, remember what I was saying? Uh, where I stopped the, this, this description where you have those electrons accumulating up in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. binding to floating atmosphere, um, cometary dust. It's negative. It's electrons that fly up. It's getting more and more negative. And those electrons that come from the Earth's surface, so the Earth's surface is getting less and less negative. In the end, a lightning, basically, it's a sudden discharge of electrons that go back from where they come from, from the Earth, from the negatively charged cloud to the ground. Same for a hurricane, some for rain that bring back, back discharge within the droplets. Um, that's the first factor. Increase in, in, uh, in dust in the atmosphere, increase, reduce the conductivity of the atmosphere. So instead of having this fair weather circulation and pro progressive eventless transfer rebalancing of charge between the ionosphere and the Earth's surface, you have accumulation of charges in the atmosphere leading to sudden discharges, all those extreme, uh, some of these extreme weather events. And there is another factor that we mentioned previous, in, a, in the previous show that's a, for what Joe was talking about, this extreme weather in the UK and extreme weather in the US, and actually they're both due to the same cause, I think which is a jet stream. Now, the jet stream, you can picture out as a, a ring, positively charged ring, circling around uh, 50 or 60 degrees north latitude, above Scotland, uh, above Canada, okay? Turning eastward, very fast, 100, 150 miles per hour. It's turning because, as hypothesized by some scientists, it is electrically charged, and it charge a, a proton, for example, or charged particle subjected to an electric field. And before we mentioned this electric field, atmospheric electric field between the ionosphere mm -hmm. and the Earth. And a particle subjected as well to a magnetic field. And we know the Earth has a magnetic field, the geomagnetic field. So charged particle subjected to an electric field and a magnetic field is subjected to a a force, a mechanic force, mechanic force called the Lorentz force. And that's what this, electric, this combination of electric field and magnetic field through the Lorentz force, that's what feeds the jet stream. So now, the jet stream usually is very... The jet stream is what separates, basically, the Arctic air from the temperate latitude air, which is uh, much warmer. Yeah, it's okay? kind of a dividing front. Yeah, and More the or less in the same place. And the driver of low altitude weather. It separates air regions, atmospheric regions. So when sun activity is strong, you have a strong electric current, strong electric field between the atmosphere and the Earth's surface. So there's the Lorentz force is very strong and the jet stream is turning very fast and very straight. Alright? Now if you reduce the solar activity what we've been going through for about 10 years now, 
this electric current is reduced, the Lorentz force is reduced, and the jet stream, instead of going fast and straight, starts meandering. Up and down, north and south. Up and down. And then instead of neatly separating Arctic air from temperate latitude air, warm, it starts to create hot pockets and cold pockets, alternating hot pockets and cold pockets. And this alternance of warm, moist air and cold, dry air is one of the main contributors to uh, what we've seen in Europe and what we see in the U.S. In the U.S., you're basically a, a cold drop, what they call now Arctic vortex. You have a cold drop, so the, the jet stream is meandering down over the U.S. territory, exposing the U.S. territory yeah. to literally Arctic air. Going down as far as Florida. Yeah, exactly, or Caribbeans. And um, so you have this uh, amazingly cold temperatures for weeks, and on the other side of the Atlantic, you have uh, the same meandering jet stream. Yeah, it's looping back up and targeting, it appears to be targeting the UK. Yeah. With storm after storm, one after the other. Yeah. I see. It's interesting because in, in Norway, which is now above, it's now on the other side of this meandering jet stream. Yeah. They've been having drought conditions relative to the heavy rainfall they're used to having mm-hmm. in winters. Um, which brings me to another crazy weather phenomenon that's been going on. Beginning in January, I noticed that in the depths of winter, in the Himalayas, there were at least three large wildfires, more or less surrounded by snow, warm enough for what you might think of as normal summer conditions. Vegetation gets dry, so... All it takes is a lit cigarette and boom, you've got a wildfire. It didn't just, they didn't just create small fires. They devastated three famous monasteries over pretty large areas in Tibet. And then in, in Norway, they had peace fires pretty high up, nearly in the Arctic Circle, on the coast with cold, cold northern winds, even though they're uh, they haven't been getting their usual weather. It's still pretty cold up there. And they had such devastating wildfires that people were evacuated from villages or hamlets. And a number of buildings were destroyed. Of course, that reminds me of something that happened in Scotland last year, April, where there were wildfires burning in marshy, boggy areas. Again, after a wet, wet winter. And also recently in the U.S., they've been having a record number of fire, uh, wildfires. Mostly they're on the other side, the warm side of this big polar vortex, they call it, where it drops down. Most of them have been on the west and southwest of the U.S., but some of them have actually broken out inside the so-called polar vortex. And they're, they're less well reported, but I found them. The one broke out in Iowa actually destroyed someone's home. It came on so quickly. Uh, while there's, I don't want to say, I don't know if there was ice on the ground, but it was in the time when the place was in it. Um, there have been hundreds. California, I did a comparison with last year. I don't know how, what, what the stats are like going back over a longer period, but in January last year in California, the number of wildfires was mm. zero. This year, I think it was 400. In the middle of winter. 
And um, actually on uh, February 24th, in uh, in a march al- along Lake Okeechobee in Florida, you had 500 acres fire burning, and under my eyes I have a picture, a color picture of the of the fire. And the interesting thing is along the lake and all around the burn area, it's greenery, which is some kind of proof that uh, the vegetation was not dry; it was green. So how can green vegetation burn? question there were wildfires in alaska last month yeah. in the middle of winter there was there was a funny one in oregon where local firefighters couldn't get it under control but the little footnote at the end of their local news article said well it was okay in the end it went out because it reached the frozen creek yeah <laughs> it's yeah. not cold well, you know i find the paradox and uh and the point is that uh, if indeed the vegetation is frozen or, and or green, it means that uh, the energy provided by the fire well, not only needs uh, you don't only need energy for the fire to occur, but you need even more energy to burn uh, green grass or frozen grass. If you try try one day to burn green grass or frozen grass, you need a lot of, uh, a lot of energy. They're trying to explain it as the result of drought conditions, yeah. warm weather on the warm side of this polar drop, but it's still not that warm, huh? But the drought conditions, they're having to bend the rules of physics here a bit because they're yeah. saying, well, the vegetation is freeze-dried. That's how combustible it is. It makes no sense. Um, in between two massive storms hitting whales in the UK, there was a big fire on the coast. Yeah, with the ground saturated with water. Yeah. It, again, that's, that's kind of bogland area. Yeah. So, Pierre, explain this. What do you think is going on? <laughs> you didn't tell me you would ask me the question. This is like a surprise question. Well, there are hypotheses. Obviously, it's not the vegetation that is uh, spontaneously burning, like in a usual summer forest fire with uh, involving dry wood and strong wind and and uh, warm temperatures, so obviously there are other factors involved, and they're not mutually exclusive. There might be um, some outgassing. Outgassing of what? Something from below? It could be. It could be a function of the kind of because there, as there's a story in the news just recently about the rotation of the Earth noticeably slowing. I think they're talking about uh, twenty-five. Uh, millisecond a month? Yeah. Uh, That basically the Earth is appreciably and observably slowing and has been for for quite a long time. Yeah, Yeah, true. Actually, it was observed first by Ptolemy in 140. I think so. It's a a very old phenomenon, but there's there's more to it than that. So, yeah, maybe we can talk about this um, opening up process that we've been... um, We've been... um, hypothesizing for for a while, so us opening up would be indeed a elegant explanation for why there is this sudden uh, gas release and some uh, unexplained phenomena that we can talk about later, but uh, if there is uh, indeed the Earth opening up, it will be due to uh, two main factors. One, the slowdown of the Earth, 
and two, a reduction of the electric field between the Earth's surface and its core. And we're going to talk about those two things separately and try to make it simple and understandable. The slowdown of the Earth, as you said, yeah, it's uh, something that is documented for literally centuries. However, this slowdown has, uh, not, is, has never been constant. Okay. So the, earth, the, the rate the Earth spins at varies slightly. Goes a bit faster, goes a bit slower. No, no, no. It keeps no. going f- with time. It mm-hmm. keeps going slower. Okay. But sometimes go much slower or less slower. Okay. Okay. But the, the actual day is always longer than the theoretical day. Not much is between uh, 0.1 and uh, 2 or 3 milliseconds. Uh, it's, uh, it's small, but it's not neglectable. And now the first thing is that uh, the slowdown has not been noticed only on uh, our, planet, our planet, but on other planets. Mainstream science explains the slowdown of the Earth because of what they call the moon tidal forces. So basically, the way the moon orbits around the planet pulls the planet, slows down the planet during its spin. Okay? But the only problem with this explanation is that we are, for example... Uh, Venus, who is slowing down as well. But Venus has no moon. So that's problematic. Well, now you have a Robert J. Curie, a, a scientist, who demonstrated that there was a correlation, very clear correlation, between uh, Earth rotation cycles, spin rate, and solar cycles, interestingly. And uh, you have other scientists, uh, particularly proponents of the electric universe, who have uh, suspected for a while indeed a correlation, an electric dimension to the spinning of the Earth. And uh, this correlation between solar activity and, um, and the spin rate of the Earth was demonstrated as well in a, in a paper published in, uh, 1972, in 1973 in Nature. This continuous change in Earth spin rate following great solar storm of August 1972. And uh, Gribin, the scientist, noticed that the spin rate of the Earth around this date was quite constant. And all of a sudden, when there was this big, this great solar storm, the spin rate of the Earth showed a spike. So the sun somehow modulates the Earth's spin rate. And what we uh, hypothesize is that uh, somehow the Earth acts as, a, you know, like an electrical motor, an electric motor. Uh, to make an analogy, you have the Earth that would act as a rotor, the rotating part, and you would have the ionosphere, which would act as a stator. The most, if you have an increase in solar activity, the stator of the ionosphere is more positive charge. You have more electric field between the rotor and the stator, and you have the Earth's spin rate that accelerates. And if solar activity decreases, which is the case since uh, the turn of the century, you would have the spin rate that would slow down faster. Uh, can we say that? Uh, is it yeah, correct English? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And uh, interestingly, if you check the U.S. Naval Observatory data that measure every day the duration of the day, you notice that since around 2002, indeed, the measure of day length has been getting longer than usual. The average was plus 0.3 milliseconds in 2003, 
and now it's more than one millisecond per day longer so you follow me here yes, you have yes. the earth that is spinning slower because the reduced solar activity all right the electric motor basically is spinning slower because uh, you reduce the, the juice that comes from the electric outlet all right now so <clears throat> the earth is not a, a perfect perfect sphere because of the centrifugal force it's wider at the equator okay and it's flat at the poles so now if you envision this uh, planet earth and you imagine that its spin rate is decreasing therefore you have a reduction in centrifugal force particularly at the equator so the equator will get smaller less extended it will compress while the high latitudes around the pole it tend to to extend it will go back from a oval shape or ellipsoidal shape mm -hmm. to a spherical shape yeah so that's the first factor that can explain this opening up phenomenon it means everything is moving a lot the tectonic plates all the the this thin crust over this big mass of uh, uh, magma is submitted to uh, a lot of uh, mechanical forces deformation twisting okay so that's the first factor that can that's a mechanical factor that can, that can explain the, the opening up of the earth now there's another factor remember when we talked about the reduced solar activity it leads to a reduced positive charge mm -hmm. within the ionosphere now the positive charge of the ionosphere remember we are talking about those electrons those three electrons flying up from the earth's surface during the fair weather circulation okay so if you have reduced solar activity you have less positive charge on the ionosphere and the electrons within the earth are not pulled this much towards the surface of the earth okay okay because positive attracts negative the low reduced solar activity you have less potential difference between the core of the earth and surface less electrons go up the surface mm -hmm. okay so now you can imagine the earth with a negatively charged surface because the positive ionosphere pulls the electron to the surface mm -hmm. and a relatively positively charged core right this negative surface and this positive core they pull each other they are opposite charge okay so when you reduce solar activity you reduce this pull this electric field between the surface and the core so now you can imagine to give an analogy imagine a magnet the core of the planet is a magnet an electromagnet and you have all this iron filing which is basically the soil and the tectonic plate that are attracted and brought together and coherent the actual, and the actual crust the tectonic plates of the yeah and and the dirt and the and and the the dirt and the, the rocks and the, you know it's mm -hmm. macro and macro level yeah it's the tectonic plates uh, and the earthquake and vol volcanic eruption but at micro level it's a uh, smaller entities like rocks like dirt and uh, subsequent uh, sinkholes maybe and upgazing anyway you reduce this field bet between the core and the earth's surface 
basically that if you switch off or you reduce the magnetic force generated by your electromagnet and all of a sudden all your iron filing, your washers, your nuts that were held together don't have this binding force anymore, they become loose. So on one side you have the, the slowdown of the planet that deforms the planet, bringing it back to a more spheroidal shape. And on the other side you have this strong binding force that was all the crust together that is reduced as well. So we have literally an opening up of the planet. Okay, so it's like the planet's crust that would normally be bound together by a stronger force due to that weaker electrical force. It's, uh, it's held together less strongly. And as a result, we get, what, sinkholes, increased earthquakes, increased volcanic, volcanic activity. This is what you mean by the Earth opening up. Yes, and uh, you mentioned volcanic activity. Well, there are many fact, many causes, sure. many effects. As uh, you can see from the discussion, it's it's interacting. But uh, yes, you're right. And uh, another effect of the Earth slowing down. You were mentioning volcanism and eruption. Is that the crust density is about three, three, three point five? It's not very heavy compared to the mantle, the magma that is about five or five point five. It means imagine the Earth turning as as a given speed and slowing down. At the moment when it slows down, the mantle, since it's higher density, has more momentum than the crust that is light. So we take more time to slow down. So when you have the Earth slowing down, what we said, what we said previously with the lengthening of the day, you have actually the crust that is slowing down faster than the mantle. So you have a crustal slippage. Okay. So you have the, the planet that changes shape, that's a, a lot of, const, of mechanical stress. You have the binding electric force between the core and the surface that is reduced. And in addition, you have this crustal slippage where you have uh, millions of tons of magma that starts to rip against the bottom surface of the crust. So yes, you can uh, imagine that as a result, uh, you will witness increase in uh, earthquake uh, frequency and uh, a volcanic eruption and sinkholes, and that's actually what uh, what happens if you check the official data. Around 2004, you had a increase in uh, earthquake with magnitude 6.0 or, or greater, and uh, and a bit later, uh, in the middle, uh, yeah, in, in 1996, you have a, an increase in uh, earthquake and uh, eruption frequency. Um, okay, and the sinkholes phenomenon, I mean, that's, that's taking off now to the point that people are noticing. Um, it's more or less, no sooner had this uh, array of storms bashed into Western Europe, particularly the UK, and sinkholes started opening up all over the place. Mm -hmm. I mean, they weren't particularly large compared to some we've seen in other parts of the world in recent years. But they were large enough to get to grab headlines in the UK press. Mm -hmm. um, I've lost count of them now. At first, there was, they were saying there was one, there's two, then there were nine, ten. I mean, it's got to the point where they're having to try to explain to people what's going on. Um, what are they saying here in the UK? Sinkholes opening up all over Britain at a terrifying rate, five times the normal rate. 
Now, they're putting that down to, well, all the water, the flooding that took place in southern England. The water loosened up the ground, therefore you have sinkholes. What you're suggesting is that that may be a factor, but something else has fundamentally loosened the bind of the crust itself. And so it will, the ground will literally plummet in places because uh, <coughs> everything's, everything's a lot looser. Yeah, these are not mutually exclusive um, causes. I mean, there are sinkholes for, for millennia. You have some sinkholes in the, the Devil's Mill Hopper sinkhole from 20,000 years ago. You have another sinkhole in uh, Mexico, Chiapas, with a Rupestrian rock painting. So, of, of course, it's been like sinkholes uh, happen all the time. Yeah. But and for millennia. But they don't happen like this. This was not normal 10 years ago. The main cause, according to official science, is, as you mentioned, dissolution of rocks. From, from rainwater? Or water? Yeah, or underground water. Okay. But keep in mind that uh, not all rocks are soluble. It's only the, basically limestone and, and similar rocks. Granite and most rocks in the metamorphic rocks in the mountains is not soluble in water. Now, if the only cause for sinkholes was rocks dissolution, how could we explain this sudden amazing increase in sinkholes? What, rocks didn't decide all of a sudden to dissolve all over the planet in places when, where there is no fracking, in places where there is no flood, in places where there is not necessarily soluble rock. So from that, we can deduce that there is another factor at play involved in this factor. The effect of this factor has been growing lately because uh, until now, 2007, sinkholes were pretty unheard of. And now it's, a, now it's an epidemic, you know, and you don't have data. I didn't find data, worldwide data about sinkholes, but sometimes you, there are some sources uh, like Alabama has more than 6,000 known sinkholes, 6,000 only in Alabama. You have this little town of uh, Harrisburg in Pennsylvania, with 41 sinkholes. So it's, uh, it's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of sinkholes that formed over the, the, last year, the past years. Yeah, there's one here from November. After, yeah, after a large earthquake in the Philippines, they said that they found 100 sinkholes that opened up. And that got me thinking to what you're saying about this the solar activity and the change in the electrical balances that take place between the atmosphere and the surface of the planet and in turn between the surface of the planet and the core of the planet. And I made that connection there. Okay, well, an earthquake will shake things up. And if there's less of a bind, a binding force holding things together, that's going to cause a lot more sinkholes to form. So yeah, there's probably a correlation because yeah. remember this uh, famous uh, sinkhole that formed in Guatemala City. Remember the one that swallowed yeah, the 2007, uh, yeah, 2010. That swallowed a three-story building and uh, and roads actually, and that was super deep. Actually, this very same sinkhole appeared at the same time as the massive eruption of the Pacaya volcano occurred. It was just 30 miles south of Guatemala City. So again, again, like uh, in the example you mentioned, you have this uh, 
seeming correlation between uh, earthquake, volcanic eruption, sinkholes. On the uh, fires, um, we don't have an explanation, but it's bizarre because we're really talking about wildfire starting in saturated, boggy, scrubby tracts of land. At and, a cold time of the year. Uh, and, and, and in some cases where the ground is still frozen and you have these fires burning, low fires burning in the scrub uh, on totally saturated with water land uh, that is very cold. So hard to explain this. Um, we talked about outgassing and maybe a bit of, you know, there maybe some release of, you know, a small level, uh, low level of release of some kind of, uh, of natural, methane or of something. Natu- natural gases uh, that just get ignited and then maybe they run along certain faults in the ground that are opening up as a result of this. Um, but it reminded me of um, the case back in uh, Caneto in Italy in, in, uh, in, in Sicily, 2004, mm. when a um, bizarre case of over a period of several months, um, various appliances, electric cables that were unplugged, uh, uh, water pipes, uh, refrigerators and washing machines were bursting into flames in this village in Italy, and they had no uh, no explanation uh, for it. Uh, there was a report written, and the report uh, ultimately suggested that the fires could have been caused by high power electromagnetic emissions, yeah. which were not man made, and reached a power of between 12 and 15 gigawatts. <clears throat> so uh, anybody who's you know good at researching. Go and find some evidence on the net that uh, NATO or not NATO, that the Pentagon has been or DARPA has been developing some kind of a, a EM pulse weapon or a microwave weapon or a radio frequency weapon, directed energy weapon. Um, unfortunately, there is no official uh, a, a declaration or, or release on such weapons uh, existing, apart from like land-based ones, there are microwave weapons and EM pulse weapons and stuff, but um, in terms of, as the report found in Italy, there was no, they didn't seem to be able to find any mobile devices in the area that could have caused this, so that led people to speculate that it was coming from a lot further away, like a space-based satellite, perhaps, or something along those lines. But that, that's all super secret stuff, so uh, good luck trying to find some evidence for that. But that's just another theory. But I like the one about uh, natural gas. Well, but it's yet to be proven. The electricity uh, possibilities um, is interesting too. And maybe in another, yeah, in another show we can talk about it. But uh, just a uh, long story short, um, if some of you are interested in it, you can type uh, Freund, Freund, TF Freund. He's a seismologist and a physicist who wrote a paper titled Rocks That Crackle and Sparkle and Glow, Strange Earthquake Phenomena. And actually, he describes and demonstrates quite brilliantly that uh, rocks that are believed to be non-conductive, electrically speaking, when subjected to some mechanical stress, becomes highly conductive. So from that, we can deduce that uh, within the ground, you can have some uh, earthquake and other phenomena, electric phenomena that are quite similar to lightning you can see in the atmosphere. Some strong discharges aiming at rebalancing some uh, yeah. disbalance. For, for, for me, the, the common thread here is, 
even if we can't explain exactly how each of these phenomena happen, the huge amount of energy required to start these fires or to set off sinkholes yeah. that are 40 foot deep in the middle of downtown Ottawa and Detroit, which happened in the last two weeks. 40 foot deep, we're, we're talking, pretty, pretty sure we're talking below the water mains. We can't blame a faulty pipe for that. Or the one in Kansas last year that's still growing. It's like the size of a lunar crater. No, it's pretty clear that the ground is opening up and it's splitting apart underneath. And, yeah. I mean, and that's the cause of the sinkholes. You know, and as Pierre described, that's probably uh, the, his explanation for that is, is probably close to the mark. Yeah, the, the common thread and, being that this, the changes in the distribution of electrical activity. Like, for example, when it comes to weather, normally there's mm. a fair weather system where you know, storms happen and there's lightning, and this is the way of redistributing the balance mm-hmm. between a positively charged atmosphere and a negatively charged. New factors added in increase comedy dust and reduce solar activity. It's changing the way in which that normal charge rebalance happens. It's got more punch, and it happens more, fre- more yeah. frequently. Yeah, more frequently. It's like a, you know, basically you can picture, you can imagine the atmosphere as a condenser. What's a condenser? <coughs> Something that condenses. A condenser is a. You imagine two two electrodes, okay? And between those two electrodes, you have a dielectric and insulating material like like wood, okay? This condenser in those electrodes, you build up charge, okay? You increase the charge between both of the electrodes, it goes up, 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 up. And all of a sudden, when you reach the, I think in English it's called the breakout voltage, it discharges. It's like a bug zapper. Okay? So, okay, imagine the atmosphere as a giant bug zapper with two electrodes. The earth surface is one electrode, the ionosphere is the other electrode. In between, you have the dielectric, the insulating material, the atmosphere. Okay? Now, when you add this cometary dust in the atmosphere, it becomes less conductive. Okay? So it, since it's less conductive, it will, uh, instead of discharging, it will discharge more frequently. But not to the atmosphere. Because you don't have fair weather circulation anymore. You don't have this leakage current, you know? Usually sure. you have a, leak, a, a progressive, mm-hmm. a permanent leakage current between the two electrodes. Even if you don't have a spark, they keep trying to rebalance and yeah. there is an el- electronic change. He doesn't have it because it's more insulating. insulating. Mm-hmm. So, so you have more frequent uh, <coughs> uh, outbreaks of storms, electrical storms. It doesn't rebalance to, to fairweather circulation with, uh, through leakage current, basically. And so it has to rebalance through uh, discharges. The spark when the bug uh, enters the interelectro space. All right, on that shocking note... We will leave it there for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks to our caller uh, and to our chat room chatters. Uh, next week, next week we're, we're going to be talking to John Perkins. He's the author of Econo- Confessions of an Economic Hitman. So we're going to get the inside scoop on how what the IMF, yeah, Ukraine, to Ukraine, the rest Russia. of Eastern Europe, Russia, yeah, and pretty much most of the world. Yeah. Okay. That'll be a good one. So tune in for that. Uh, as I said, uh, thanks for listening. Have a good one. And we are in the condition we are in. In the state.
situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression.